0: Well, this morning I have the, the privilege, the, the task, and the weighty responsibility of bringing forth the Word of God, so let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, again, I, I, I do thank you for your, as we just sang about your, your ancient words, words that were penned so long ago that are uh, living and active. Words that we do not need to, to make relevant, but because they are your very words, they uh, by definition are relevant and authoritative and is the rule of our lives. Lord, I pray as we, we look through your word, pray that um, we would see them as, as your words to us. Pray, Lord, that. Uh, you would give uh, clarity as I go through these things, and we pray that uh, ultimately, Lord, that uh, You would be magnified, You would be glorified, uh, and that uh, You would speak to us through Your your Word. We thank You for this day. We thank You for this time to, to gather. We thank You for the, the great time that it is, Lord, to just um, look into Your Word and hear what it is that... Uh, Uh, that you would have for us help us to be uh, eager and ready hearers and those that are purposeful to to do what your word says pray all these things in Jesus name amen if you could turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 we'll be looking at verses uh, 1 through 6 this morning and it's at this point in the letter of Ephesians that Paul is making his transition from uh, establishing doctrine, and he is turning the corner to practical uh, living. And if you, you know, if you read through Paul's letters, this is a, a standard thing that Paul does: is he front loads all his letters with uh, heavy doctrine, and then he turns the corner and he says, all right, this is how you live in the light of all these truths. He doesn't completely abandon doctrine, but his, his focus moves over into, into um, practical living. And that's what we have here in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, before we start our way through it, I'd just like to read it starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. He, he writes this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of spirit, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, and through all and in all. So it's at this word, therefore, that that Paul makes this transition from establishing uh, a doctrinal foundation, uh, sound you know, sound teaching, and he moves over into what it looks like to practice the theological foundation that he has just established. And this passage, it's it's very similar to other passages. And when I think of this, it, it, it somewhat reminds me of of what he does in, in the book of Romans. And we'll look at that in a little bit because he does the same type of transition. But this is a transition where he's moving from orthodoxy, which is sound doctrine, a sound teaching, a foundation of sound truth. And he's moving over into orthopraxy, which would be practicing what, um, what that foundation is, practicing based on those foundational truths. So the transition here is into uh, what we would call sanctification. And so there's, there's two types of sanctification. What he's dealing with here is the, the practical sanctification or progressive sanctification or um, our personal holiness or our daily living or the process in which we are conformed more to the image of Christ. So he's moving over from the doctrine into uh, daily practice. How are we to practice all these truths that he has just developed for us? And I think a good, a good picture of what he's talking about here in sanctification is uh, from the book of uh, Philippians. And I, I have it in my notes so I can just read it. But the idea that, that sanctification is um, a process in which we are involved and the Holy Spirit is involved, um, unlike justification that we just went through in Galatians, right? That is entirely a work of God. We do nothing. Uh, it is by, uh, by grace through faith. But the process of sanctification is a process in which we are yielding to the Word of God. We are walking, to the, walking according to what the Spirit says. And so there is an involvement in our part. And Paul writes this in the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 2. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And you can see the, uh, the relationship there, right? It's, it's yieldedness to the word of God and to the spirit to be conformed to Christ. So that's, the, that's what we're getting at here in the book of Ephesians. And I think it, it'd be helpful to just be reminded of some of the doctrinal foundation that he has, he has established at this point in time. So the doctrinal foundation that we have, that we are to live our lives by, that we are to be grounded in it, and is found in um, the truth of God's all-sufficient, inerrant, authoritative, and living word. So that's the the foundation that we have. So we have uh, an ultimate authority that we are supposed to live by. And we can look at really the beginning of chapter 1, to look at some of the foundation that is laid, or we could look at chapter 2 because there's, there's all kinds of things there. And we'll really just looking at this by way of, of building this foundation of truth that he is saying that we need to live in accordance with. So in chapter 2, uh, really verses 1 through 10 I think is a good summary, and then we can summarize some of uh, chapter 1 to see... You know, what's this foundation that he is building off of and what it is that he is developing from? So, starting in chapter 2 of Ephesians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh. And of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order that, in the ages to come, we might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So just a quick summary of of what what we have there, and I'm sure you can pick out a lot of different truths uh, from that. The foundational truths that he's building from is we're loved by God, we're chosen by God, We were formerly dead in our trespasses and sins. We were made alive. We are saved by grace, not by works. Uh, We are saved unto good works. And we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So this is the foundational doctrinal truth that he's building on. And if you go back to chapter 1, chapter 1, he immediately in his book just explodes into a whole... Huge sentence of just doctrinal truth. And in chapter one, he talks about how we are elect, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we're forgiven, we're reconciled, and we're sealed. And these are all the truths that he is uh he's building off of at this point in time. The truth that he wants us to have in our mind as we as we live. So that gets us to his his transition, and that's some of what he is building on just by way of review or reminder. And we notice in first verse 1, uh, Paul, he makes a plea. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you. So Paul is not using his apostolic authority here. He is not commanding them. He is not um, using that authority that they know that he has to say that they must do this, but he is taking a very very pastoral approach, a very gentle approach, and he's urging them to do it based on the truths that he has just developed. He's, he's beseeching them. He's putting forward a plea. Uh, you know. And really, if you, if you look through all the doctrine that he's established, it's a passionate plea. He, he's just established all God has done for us in salvation, all God has done for us in making us part of uh, the body, that is, uh, the church, he deals with that a lot in those beginning chapters, um, and I, I think I've mentioned this before. This is the reason that I've come to the book of Ephesians, because as I, the last time I read it, I realized how much of a focus there was on the church, and how big a deal the church is to God, and so that is part of the doctrinal foundation that he has in here, that we are as believers, those that have been made alive from dead, we are part of this great work that is God, God is doing, and is the church, and so... Practically now, we're looking: how do we function in the church that we have been made part of? Like I said, this is a lot like uh, Romans chapter twelve, uh, it's the same type of plea. In Romans twelve one and two, Paul writes this: Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable. So the same type of plea is used here in Romans chapter 12. He is, you know, all the way up to Romans chapter 12. He has established all that doctrinal truth and he puts out there the same plea. He's exhorting, he's urging us. If these things are true, which they are, then this is how we ought to live in the light of those things that are true. So Paul is urging us to walk according to our calling. And we'll develop what that means. Um, And when Paul is asking us to live in accordance with our calling, uh, we know that it is really God or the Lord Jesus that is urging us, exhorting us, encouraging us to walk according to our calling. Urging us to walk according to... His revealed word, asking us to walk according to um, our unity with Christ. Uh, the book of Ephesians spends a lot of time on that. If you look up the, the, the phraseology in Christ in the book of Ephesians, it occurs uh, a multitude of times. It's, it's, a, it's a concept that Paul just drives home in, in the book of Ephesians that through faith, In salvation, we are united with Christ. We have unity with Christ. And that unity is shown forth in being part of uh, the body of Christ. And he is urging us to live in such a way that reflects that. So as I was going through this and thinking through these things, here's a number of questions that I asked myself as I reflected upon what he was saying there. And they're questions you should ask yourself as well. and and, And here's some of them, and I'm sure you can think of others. How does my conduct reflect upon God when others see me living daily? How does it reflect upon the unity that I have with Christ? Does the way I conduct myself make the doctrines of the scriptures attractive or does it seem to be that I am a hypocrite? Do I live and purposely conduct myself in a manner that is aligned with the reality that I am united with Christ and seated in the heavenlies and part of the body of Christ? So those are things that to, to ask ourselves when we consider this, this idea of what is a worthy walk. So first we'll look through Paul's actual plea here. His actual plea is to walk in a worthy manner of the calling with which you've been called. So we'll look at those, um, we'll look at those parts and then we'll get into... Uh, the specifics of what that actually looks like. So first, we'll we'll take them in reverse order. So he says, manner worthy, walk worthy, calling. So we'll take calling first. And calling, we've already basically looked at that. Uh, That calling is uh, a calling to salvation. We looked in chapter 2. We just kind of read through it really quick. right? We're saved by grace. The purpose... Stated within that is so that we would walk in good works, right? We're saved for a purpose. That purpose is to walk in good works. Uh, other writers of Scripture say it in, in different ways, right? Peter says that we are to be holy as he is holy because of our calling. So this calling is to live in accordance with the Word of God, to live in a manner that, is, uh, that resembles the Lord Jesus, and so this calling is, is really developed in, in chapter 1, chapter 2. And I think the, one of the best places to summarize the calling is from chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we be holy and blameless before him. So we're called to a holy and blameless life because we are in Christ, chosen by God before the foundation of the world, and there's a lot that can be developed there, but we're just we're just going to look at that as as a as a background and a foundation for what he is dealing with here. Um, as you go through the this letter, we see also that the calling is to a relationship. It's to a relationship with Christ, and in chapter two, he also develops that as a special relationship as we are in the body of Christ. And, in, and he, uh, he develops that, you know, there's that middle wall that has been broken down so that there's no more distinction, there's no more animosity between Jew and Gentiles, but he has created one new body, the church. You know, that is all part of that calling that we are to be part of. So we are to walk worthy of that calling. So what is worthy? What does it mean to be worthy? The word can be understood to be, um, you know, suitable, appropriate, proper. It uh, could be understood in kind of like a, in a more modern sense of that which doesn't clash, that which uh, doesn't um, stand out as, as improper. The original meaning of, of the word has with it the idea of, of, uh, of a counterbalance for a scale. So they used to have like the, I can't remember what the type of scale is called now, but it's a scale that, you know, it tips on both sides. So you would have a standardized weight that you would put on this side. If somebody was trading or selling something, you would know what this weight is. So you would bring the thing that you were trying to trade or sell, and you'd put it on this side, and if if it balanced out, this thing was worthy because it measured what the standard was. So the the idea of worthy comes from that that terminology that, that the scale's, uh, counterbalanced, that it, that it matches, that the thing that's been brought forward is what it should be. And so you can see how that, you know, that being the basis of the word, you can see how that it kind of morphed into being what is appropriate or worthy or suitable because it, it matched. So our walk before um, God, uh, before others in the church, our walk in the world, you know, does it match? Is it suitable? Is it appropriate? Does it line up with the doctrines that Paul has already established? Do we live as those that have been made alive from the dead? You know, is it is it worthy, or does it does it clash? That's what he's that's what he's getting at. Uh, he uses this terminology in a number of other places. He uses it in uh, Philippians, and Colossians. Uh, First Thessalonians and, and I have those here just to get a quick sampling of, of how Paul uses this um, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. that's Philippians, uh, Colossians, so that you walk so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's Colossians, First Thessalonians, so that you should walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So it's a common theme that, that Paul brings up, and it's that our conduct, the way that we live, should match the doctrinal truths that we hold to. So it's, we can't be all, all doctrine and no practice, but on the other hand, you can't be no doctrine because in there, there is no practice. But we have to be um, people of the Word that understand what the Word says, But then when we truly understand it, then we are those that do it, right? That's what James says uh, in the first chapter, that we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So that's what a worthy walk looks like. It is doing what God says, regardless of what it may cost us, right? Paul, in verse 1, he says, uh, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, right? Paul, for his obedience... For his life of living in accordance with the Word of God has found himself under house arrest, so he knows he knows what it could cost to, to follow. He knows that it requires denial of self he knows that it requires that, that he love others right He loves others to the extent and loves God to the extent that he obeys even when it is very costly and you can you can read in the, I believe Second Corinthians, you can read of all the things that Paul suffered for the sake of the gospel. Uh, he he suffered tremendously for obedience to the word of God. Uh, lastly, we have the word uh, walk, and we've kind of touched on that a little bit, but generally speaking, that just means our our conduct, how we live, how we carry ourselves uh, each and every day. So our calling is that we are chosen by God for a purpose. The purpose is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, That purpose is lived out in the body of Christ. And we are to walk, conduct ourselves in such a way that that matches. So that it is worthy, that it is suitable. So now what does that look like? Or what are the particular aspects of what a worthy walk looks like in the light of the, the doctrinal foundation that Paul has laid? So now we move on to four essential characteristics of a worthy walk. And um, if you look, you'll see that, that Paul has given a number of different uh, prepositional phrases and clauses here. And as we go through them, um, I'm going to treat them as if they're imperatives uh, because really it just, it just preaches better if they're imperatives. It's more, it's more personal. It's more direct rather than uh, being descriptives. So a worthy walk is characterized by these four things. Uh, To be humble and gentle, he couples those together. Uh, To be patient, to be forbearing, and to be diligent in maintaining unity. So these are four essential characteristics of what it is to walk worthy, what it is to live out the doctrinal truths that he has established. Uh, It's a very intimidating list, isn't it, when you look at all those things? Because I'm sure that if we look through those things, we see areas where we struggle greatly. Uh, Humility, gentleness, patience, being forbearing. Um, And you also notice that there's there's kind of a building in what Paul has here that we start general and then the last one is a lot more specific. But all those general ones build to the specific of the last one. <coughs> Excuse me, so the first one is be humble and gentle, and he couples those together, so we'll treat those together uh humility, uh loneliness of mind. it is correctly esteeming ourselves small when we consider who we are based on the reality of who God is. It's seeing ourselves as God sees us uh there There are numerous passages that we could look at, but I do not think there's a, there's a greater example than that which we have written about the Lord Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we see the, the lowliness of mind. We see the humility of Christ in his, his condescension uh, in the incarnation. And so Philippians chapter 2, we see this ultimate example of what it is to have humility and starting in verse 3, and I have it in my notes, so you don't have to turn there, but Philippians chapter 2, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as, small, as, as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And just a, a quick little uh, explanation there without digging into that text too much. Uh, there's, there's certainly a lot there, and the point that I wanted to, uh, to zero in on is the, the humility of Christ in that, that, He thought more of us than himself, than his own personal well-being. And he did this while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies. He condescended and suffered. In a book that I recently read that's called The Man of Sorrows, there's a good summary, I think, of, of what's happening in this passage. And he writes it in a couple of different ways. And they're very succinct, so I, I, I like them because that, that works well for me. Um, and he says this about Jesus' condescension and humiliation in becoming a man. he says, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Keeping everything it means to be God, he became everything that it means to be man. And in that, we can, we can certainly see a picture of humility that... Jesus condescended so that we might have forgiveness. Certainly we have a picture of what it is to to consider others first, to think of others first. And when you think of, of what the Lord Jesus did in that instance, um, I know personally I, I, I consider that and think that I have never been humble. If that's what humility looks like, if that's what being humble looks like, then I have... I have never done that to that extent. To exhibit and express such love is, is unbelievable. It's overwhelming. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 12. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. So humility has to be anchored in truth. It's Corresponding to reality, it's corresponding to God's viewpoint, what God thinks on a matter. It is a reality that we live, we need to live in accordance with. Um, when we live pridefully, which you know is is sinful living, we also demonstrate that we are very. Poor theologians and think very little of God. I was trying to think of a way to, to illustrate and to, to get my mind around how we are to react to the Word of God. And so this, this illustration has to do with specifically how we react to the Word of God. So don't, don't read the Word of God into it. It's how we're supposed to react. All right. So I was thinking about times when we react quickly, we respond appropriately. And I was thinking of uh, just, just recall a time when you've had a pebble in your shoe. So you have a pebble in your shoe and what, what do you do when you have a pebble in your shoe? You, you don't dare take another step. You don't move. You do what you have to do to extricate yourself from the pain. You react quickly. You sit right down, you take your shoe off and you get rid of that pebble. And I think when I was thinking through this, that is how we have to react to the Word of God, right? We can't move on from it. We can't take another step. We have to apply it. We have to uh, get it into our, our thinking. We have to live it out with the same immediacy as that we would take that pebble out of our shoe, right? We, we're not going to just keep going and we're just going to walk a mile with it there. We're going to get rid of it. We're going to remove it. So that there's an immediacy in which we deal with that situation. So again, that's just to try to get. uh, That was that was to just try to help me process through how we are to react to God's word. Uh, Next in this this coupling, we see that He uses the word gentleness. Uh, Certainly, we have as a picture of gentleness the Lord Jesus as well. It can also be translated uh, meekness. Or self-control or temperance, uh, we know that Jesus, in his character on display in his earthly ministry, he was gentle and humble. And again, a great example of this that I see is in Jesus, um, and Peter writes it, and this is second Peter chapter two, verse twenty one we have been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in turn. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Now we know from Hebrews that Jesus is the one that upholds all things by the power of his word. So in the midst of suffering, he upheld those that suffered, or upheld those that were causing him suffering. Now I think that is a picture of meekness and gentleness. Uh, Did he have the power to, to crush, or to make those that were causing the pain, Uh, no longer exist, uh, uh, certainly. But in uh, gentleness, he bore the pain, the suffering, and entrusted himself uh, to God. We know what it is when we are not gentle. I think we all uh, can pick up on that. We can see it. Uh, I think partly because we, we model it so well at times. But it's when we are harsh. It's when we're short with one another or when we don't have time for one another. Uh, it's when we say unhelpful, uh, unconstructive things to one another or to our spouses, whatever it may be. I mean, we all know what that looks like. So the first, the first aspects that we have of a worthy walk are to be humble and gentle. The next we have is be patient. And he says here, uh, with patience. I said in the beginning that, you know, a lot of these things are are kind of daunting tasks for us, and I suspect if I asked a lot of you that you would say that an area that you admittedly struggle with uh, greatly is patience. It's the the dreaded P word. Uh, It is a fruit of the spirit. And patience is one of those things that is difficult in that if you picture yourself sitting at the seashore and the waves are rolling in and it's quiet and relaxing, there's no need for patience. Uh, But as soon as we get in the car and enter into traffic, that's when we need patience. Patience is one of those things that that um, only comes up when there is pressure, when there is stress, when there is uh, something against us, that's when we have to be patient. A literal understanding of the word is long to anger. Patience is that which the the Holy Spirit works within us. Um, Often situationally, right? Again, we don't need to exercise patience by the serene seashore, we need to exercise patience when there's something that's not going according to the way that we want it to go, or if somebody has done something that we did not care for, that's when we need to exercise patience. I think we can picture impatience very easily in our, in our minds as well, as it's one of those things that we model well. It's one of those um, as I've heard people put it, it's one of those old grave clothes that we put back on, right? Using Paul's terminology, that we're to put off old things from the old man, the spiritually dead man, and we're to put on new things. And impatience would be one of those old—it's like the old grave clothes that we put back on, not suitable. Uh, again, we know what this looks like because we we see it often. Again, it's um, being short with one another, abrupt. It's the wrong thinking that we have at times where we say in our minds, haven't I told you this before? Or when we say in our minds, haven't we had this conversation before? You know, that we show great impatience in those things and we become uh, quick to frustration and anger. Patience is a work of the Spirit within us as we yield to the Word of God. When we are impatient, we tend to be living in the circumstances of life. We tend to be reacting to what is going on around us rather than being anchored in the fact that God is providential and sovereign in all things. So when we leave back to the beach, if we leave the beach and we enter traffic, and there's somebody very slow in front of us or whatever it may be, driving crazy or recklessly, if we believe that God is truly providential and sovereign, we know that that is no accident. We know that that is an opportunity for us to yield to the Word of God and live in a Christ-like way and not live within the circumstances of life. Paul writes this in... Colossians, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. So that's, that's kind of what I was saying. It's, it's We live in the circumstances of life and we do not have our mind set on heavenly things. We do not have our mind set on Christ, but our own... Uh, our own desire to to get home or whatever it may be. We are living in the circumstances of life. So we are to be humble and gentle. We are to be patient and we are to be forbearing. This is to bear with or to put up with. And as you see, these, uh, these all develop into categories of Of love. We just went through a a series on love, and many of these things are aspects of what it means to love. So we are to be forbearing. And what are we to forbear? What are we to put up with long? Um, It's the failings and the shortcomings of others. It requires that we lay aside our own personal preferences. It requires that we don't get entangled in uh, petty squabbles about things that don't matter. It requires that we deny self and love. And all of these things are aspects of that. Uh, When we are humble and gentle and patient and forbearing, we are denying ourselves. We are denying the desires that we have, and we are living in accordance with what God says in his word. When we are forbearing, we conduct ourselves within, the, within a church in a way that is worthy of how we have been called to unity. And we'll get to that one next because that's where he goes. Uh, Colossians 3.13, Bear with one another, forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against another, anyone, just as the Lord forgave, so you forgive. So there again is our example in the Lord Jesus. As we have been forgiven By Christ, that is how we are to forgive one another in the same way. And remember that we are enemies. We make ourselves enemies of God when we live contrary to his word. So the amount of forgiveness that we have in Christ is unbelievable and that's the measure by which we are supposed to forgive others. So in actuality, it should make forgiveness pretty easy if we have a right assessment of how much we have been forgiven. Peter writes, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So when we love, we don't get ourselves in these positions where we decide that we need to get back what is ours or we need revenge or we are worried about our rights being uh, stepped on, but we forgive and we bear with one another. Uh, next we have be diligent in maintaining uni- unity. And this is what I was saying that he kind of builds to this point. The other ones, um, all are aspects of self-denial. They are all aspects of love. And it all leads to this, this final point here is that we are to be diligent in maintaining unity. Uh, Diligent is is the idea of making every effort, endeavoring, um, putting to to practice. The idea, it's it's like the removal of the pebble from your shoe. You get get right to it. You don't let it continue the way that it is. So we are to maintain unity, and and it's, it's important that he he writes that we are to maintain it. Right, Unity is not something that we create. We don't fabricate it. It's a unity that exists and the unity exists because of the work that God has done. And Paul develops that in the beginning part of the book that we are united with Christ, that we are united in the church, that there is one new body that he has made. So the unity is there. So on our part, He says, maintain it, so do the work that's necessary to not cause division. And how do we cause division? We cause division by pride, harshness, impatience, and um, unforgiveness. So on our part, all that we can do is cause disunity. Because the unity exists. The unity has been established by... God, it is unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is what Paul writes. So it's that which has been established and all we can do is, on our part is cause disunity. And we know God's viewpoint on disunity, right? Uh, Proverbs 6, I think, is, is a passage that he uh, points it out. He says, six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination. And down to verse 19 one that spreads strife among brethren. And then in his, his, uh, Paul's writing to Titus, he points out um, kind of a, a, a different approach to how we might think of church discipline uh, typically, which is in Matthew 18. In Titus, he talks about a factious man, which is one that would create division. That person... Um, well, I'll just, I'll just read it here. He says, oh, This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. So God's viewpoint of unity is, is very strong. So there's a situation of, in which somebody is causing disunity that they get a, a second warning and that's it. In chapter 2, we see Paul talking about this unity And he says this in chapter 2, starting in verse 14. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity and he became he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace peace to those who were near so this is the unity that has been established so a worthy walk is characterized by being humble and gentle by being patient by being forbearing by being diligent to maintaining unity So how is this unity maintained? This unity is maintained uh, one interaction at a time as we interact with one another. It is done through denying ourselves and loving one another as Christ does um, by being humble, gentle, patient, and forbearing. It can only be accomplished as we prayerfully yield to the Word of God And when we specifically deny ourselves and personally don't get wrapped up in what it might cost us. The unity that we have in the church is something that God has created and we on our part can only damage it. Unity is is difficult to, it can be difficult to maintain if we do not have right thinking, if we are not grounded in what the Word of God says, and if we are not yielding to the work of the Spirit in our lives. And this, going back to the beginning, is, is part of that process of sanctification, part of that process in which we are made more like Christ. And one of the ways that God does this one of the ways he conforms us to the body of Christ, or to the, to the image of Christ, is through the body of Christ. So these truths here, uh, being patient and humble and forbearing, and, and all these that he lists here, all these are to be practiced and done within the church, because this is where God has for us to grow, this is what God uses for us to be conformed to the image of Christ as we come together as a family. And when we come together in this, this way, when we join together, when we are in each other's lives, when we interact, that is where, um, that is when the, the pressure comes. That is when the difficulties come. That is when we rub one another the wrong way or whatever it may be. That's when we say things that are unhelpful. And that's when we need to be humble, gentle, patient, forbearing. Because it is in those instances in which we yield to the Word of God and walk according to the Spirit that we maintain the unity that has been established. Paul closes with just a, kind of like a theological outpouring, and you can notice that he uses the word one because he's focusing on this idea of unity, this idea of uniqueness. Um, Certainly the idea of the exclusivity of biblical Christianity shines forth, true biblical Christianity shines forth in this passage. As he says, um, there is one body, that is one universal body of all believers one spirit the holy spirit just as you were called in uh, one hope of your calling one lord one faith uh, exclusive faith one baptism the baptism of the holy spirit one god and father of all who is over all and through all and just as a side note there i think it's pretty easy to see the uh the doctrine of the trinity there right the the unity is in, in the, the order that he uses is um, Spirit, uh, Son, Father. So he, he ends with this, this foundational truth on the unity that we have in Christ. And I'll end with uh, one, one passage here from First uh, John and then just a quick recap of what Paul writes here. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And so a worthy walk is characterized by love and self-denial. And the four essential items that, that Paul picks out for us here are being humble and gentle, being patient, being forbearing, and being diligent to maintain unity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again just for the goodness of your word. We thank you that your word challenges us. We thank you for your your word that reveals our sin, our, our shortcomings. We thank you for the the example of the Lord Jesus that we can constantly go back to and read and consider. Lord, I pray that you would work within us uh, to deny self, to love one another, to exemplify in our lives the Lord Jesus. Lord, may we uh, walk in a manner that is worthy, that is pleasing to you, that exhibits uh, the truths that we have been uh, made alive from the dead in Christ.